Amen. So in the summer of 1969, three-fifths of the U.S. population and 650 million people around the world were glued to their TVs watching the lunar landing. You remember Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin when Armstrong said as he stepped onto the moon, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. According to the historian Kendrick Oliver in his book To Touch the Face of God, he says, and I quote, in broadcasting live the arrival of Armstrong and Aldrin on the moon, NASA engineered a modern equivalent of sacred time. For a few minutes at least, Americans could imagine themselves involved collectively in a cosmic drama. And what resulted in some cases certainly was the impression of peak experience. I was curious and I looked at the front page of the Boston Globe from the, the day after that event. And this is what it said on the front page of the Globe that year, or that day. And I quote, two men from the planet Earth landed on the surface of the moon at 4.17 and 45 seconds in the Eastern Standard Time, Sunday, July 20th, 1969. It brought the dawn of a new era in the evolution of man. The age of space truly began on this momentous day and throughout the world, scientists now await data and samples which will determine heretofore unknown or uncertain facts about our world and ourselves." Unquote. The entire population recognized this as an, an extraordinary achievement of engineering and of technology, of human in ingenuity. And it actually brought the whole country together. But I would suggest to you, despite that incredible, laudable achievement, despite the soaring rhetoric of the media and the exuberance that was felt by many at that time, that despite those things, many now recognize that the Apollo 11 mission, and as part of all the Apollo missions, did not lead to a new era in the evolution of man. What was it that caused our whole society to pursue the moon? Well, there are a number of factors. Americans were competing against the Soviets in the space race. It was an incredibly positive story in the midst of the Cold War, the Vietnam War, and there was a tremendous civil unrest at that time, great divisions in our country. And NASA had brilliantly sold the science and the thrill of space exploration. NASA used the media and the press in order to gain cultural favor, in order to get more federal funding so that they could do more of their space program. And the media used NASA to advance their own cultural influence and power. But I would suggest to you that there, besides these particular sociological reasons of why we were chasing the moon, there was a more fundamental spiritual reason. And it lies in the yearning of the human heart, a yearning to ascend. I would suggest to you, and I think you probably know this in, in yourself, that there is 
a gnawing realization within each one of us that something is missing. The human heart wants to rise, to go above, to transcend the quagmire of this sphere. We're looking for something else. There's something missing. And we are willing to search far and wide. We are willing to chase shadows and go to the moon in order to get out of this stuckness and this quagmire. Psalm 134 is a collection of the Psalms of Ascents. I would suggest to you is a response to the yearning of the heart to rise. Psalm 134, it, it provides an alternative pathway, not to the moon, but to somewhere else in order to experience ascendance. Uh, as you might know, we've been going through the Psalms of Ascents over the last, uh, over the, the summer course, and today is our last one, Psalm 134. It's a collection of these 15 psalms, 120 all the way through 134. And Psalm 134, as we read it, and it's printed in your bulletin, or you can look at it in your Bible, it's a, a very brief finale and a culmination of these psalms of ascents. And it was St. Augustine who, about 1,600 years ago, he suggested that these collection of psalms, these collections are a pathway or steps in which we can experience spiritual transcendence. These 15 psalms work together as a package, if you will, in which there is a movement from below to above, in which the soul is elevated into heights of meaning and purpose and identity. But the three, these three brief verses of Psalm 134, they're one very small step, if you step back and just look at them. What is it? Well, it's repeated twice in Psalm 134. It's to bless the Lord. It's a small step. What does blessing the Lord mean? Well, it means simply to give over your entire soul, your whole being over to the Lord, to God. But unfortunately, what is actually a small step can feel and appear to be a giant leap. Why is that? Well, it's because we live in a society and in a culture, and it resides within our own hearts of resistances of being able or wi and willing to bless the Lord. And I think Psalm 134, it's, it, as you look at it, 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 it's simple, and you kind of might scratch your head saying, what is this really all about? And I think it's helpful if we take the psalm and compare it to other ways of thinking, and when we see it in comparison to a, a different way of ascending, the psalm really starts to take on meaning. And so I, my outline for us this morning is to first to consider a particular cultural dimension within, within the American society and Western society, which is the consumerist spirit. And I'll show you why we're gonna look at that as we compare it to Psalm 134. So we're gonna start with the consumerist spirit, and then we're gonna move to Point two, which is, what does it mean to bless the Lord? Psalm 134, this ascending of the soul, and we'll look at that. And then finally, after going through the consumerist spirit and blessing the Lord, we're, gonna, we're going to make a comparison between these two ways of ascending. Ascension through the consumerist spirit and 
ascending through a biblical, a biblical spirituality of, that's explained in Psalm 134. All right, so that's the outline. So let's begin. First, what is a consumerist spirit? Well, consumerism, you're familiar with the word, is a belief that human happiness depends largely on the gaining of goods and possessions. Whole societies devote enormous energy and time and resources to meditating and contemplating the obtaining of goods and then pursuing them and getting them. Harvard political philosopher Michael Sandel in his book, What Money Can't Buy, he differentiates between what he calls a market economy and a market society. Sandel says, and I quote, a market economy is a tool, it's a valuable and effective tool for organizing productive activity. A market society is a way of life in which market values seep into every aspect of human endeavor. It's a place where social relations are made over into the image of the market, unquote. So consumerism, it's not just about how economics work in our society, and it's not just simply about going to the mall or going to Amazon to buy something. A consumerist spirit goes deeper than that, in which it shapes the very way you approach life, how you experience it and how you see it. Consumerism, at its core, has a fundamental assumption that you are at the center, so that when you think about things and you look out beyond yourself, you ask, what do I want? What will make me happy? You're the center, and not only so, but then as you start to look at everything around you, consumerism teaches us implicitly to commodify things so that we use a certain kind of cost-benefit analysis on whether we want to purchase that thing or not. I can give you some examples. We approach friendship. We can be at least tempted to, to approach friendship as consumers, in which there is an implicit calculation of gain. What am I getting out of this relationship? Whereas, of course, true friendship is delighting in the person as the per for the person who he or she is. You're not counting and making this kind of calculation. You're considering, how do I serve the person around me? And that person, as a friend, is doing the same towards you. Consumerism not only affects things like friendship, but it can affect our thinking, for example, of where we live. You've all made choices about where to live. I can, uh, one way to approach where you live is to ask the question, well, where, God, where do you want me to live? Who and what people and what neighborhood am I supposed to be serving? And where can I be an instrument of care? Uh, and where do you want me to go, Lord? Are, are, are some of our missionaries, all of our missionaries, such as the Tams and the Kangs, they've discerned that kind of question in their discernment to go to a particular neighborhood in a particular city in the country of Japan. But the consumer's mentality, it doesn't prioritize that way of thinking. A consumer's mentality thinks about things like the convenience of the location or the size of your apartment or your home or what school system am I, should I be in for my, for my children or what's the long-term resale value of my home. Now those are all, of course, important considerations. Don't misunderstand me. 
but a consumer spirit makes those the most fundamental consideration. Whereas there is a different way of thinking outside of consumerism in which we approach where we live with this sense of mission and purpose. Well, it doesn't stop there. Consumerism actually permeates even how we approach this, the topic of spirituality. Spirituality, after all, if you didn't know, is big business in our country, and it affects how we think. Pastors and spiritual leaders, they can become convincing salesmen rather than shepherds. Or perhaps you might be looking for a church. Maybe you're here for the first time wondering, okay, do I want to come to this church? A consumerist spirit would say, well, what am I going to get out of this? Do I really like this? Is this going to be a really good fit and make me happy? Versus another way of approaching it is, which is, Lord, where do you want me to go? And it might not be the very best community that you're called to be at. But God wants you to be in that particular community. And that's not following that kind of consumerist spirit. Does any of this sound familiar? I know it sure does for me. Every one of these, and much more, the spirit of consumerism is something that I struggle with. Perhaps you do as well. But worst of all, the this consumerist spirit affects our very relationship with God. So let me transition now to, as we've just kind of very briefly con considered consumerism and the consumerist spirit, now let's turn our attention to Psalm 134. In this call to the ascending of the soul to bless the Lord. How does it start? Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. And then it's repeated again in verse 2, just for emphasis. Bless the Lord. Now it's not obviously clear to me what blessing the Lord means. And I've often puzzled over blessing. I don't understand what this means. And I think it's helpful to consider three ways or three movements in how blessing is described in the Bible. The first is this, and it's the most obvious and the clearest. It's when the blessing comes from the greatest down to the lesser. That's when God blesses you or me. It's when the abundance of the life of God touches us and we get filled with that divine life in some way, whether in ourselves or outside of ourselves, but we experience that tremendous blessing from whom every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. That's one sense of blessing, but there's another movement of blessing. It's when one blesses another, one who is lesser, blesses a lesser. That's, for example, one, when one person blesses another person. We say, may God bless you, or we hope for God's blessing for you. I learned this lesson when I was in college, when I had the opportunity to meet a famous evangelical Baptist systematic theologian named Millard Erickson. I was studying his uh, systematic theology, which was about 1,300 pages long, and I went with my class to his home. We got a chance to ask him many questions. And at the end of the time that we were together, I asked him if he would sign the book. And in fact, this week I went back and I looked at the book and there was, there was his uh, signature to me and this is what he wrote. He said, to Michael, with God's blessing in Christ, Millard Erickson. And then he stopped himself. I remember it so clearly. He stopped himself, no, actually I can't say that. And he put a little carrot sign in and then he inserted the words, best wishes for. 
And he said, I, I can't bless you. What do I have? I'm nothing. But my wish is for God to bless you. And so he corrected himself to Michael with best wishes for God's blessing in Christ, Millard Erickson. And so blessing can go from the greater to the lesser, and blessing can go from the lesser to the lesser. But now Psalm 134, the strange one, kind of. It's when the blessing goes from the lesser to the greatest. And then it's very counterintuitive. How can, how can the lesser bless the one from whom all blessings flow? Well, I think one way to think about this is that blessing the greater, blessing the greatest, has it both an external and an internal dimension to it. So the external dimension, to, to bless God, has this external expression, and, and it's important to consider the context of verse 1, where it is in the house of the Lord. And of course, in Israel's worship, as well as in Christian worship, we are called together to gather and to praise God's name, to sing songs to him, to tell God that we adore him, that he's majestic and awesome and good and he's loving and he's wonderful and we so appreciate him. It's to express words of thanksgiving and to then to meditate on Christ and upon his scriptures and, uh, and to commit ourselves and to renew our covenant vows to him. It's, that's partly what it means to bless the Lord. It's to express it to him, to tell him who he is and your appreciation and your love for him. But the external expression of blessing God makes zero sense. It's absolutely empty unless it is founded upon the internal component of blessing the Lord, which is yet your heart, your whole being. Everything within your core is laid down to God and given over to him. In fact, the, the Hebrew word bless, barak, it has a, it's associated with the same Hebrew word for the word knee, the part of our leg, berek. That is, when we bless God, we are in essence saying we're bending the heart like a servant would bend their knee to a great king. What we're saying is, out of my little tiny abundance, and that's really all I have, that's really all that you have, out of your tiny little abundance... I'm giving it all to you, God. Everything that I am, everything that I have, my very heart, my very core, I'm giving it all to you because you're worthy of me and much, much more. That's what it means to bless the Lord. It has an external expression, but it does not mean anything if it does not flow out of the heart, out of the heart that has been laid down to God because you are great, God. You deserve everything about me. Is that your heart today? Is that where you are? Where you are ready to bend the, your own heart to God, saying that you love, love him with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, as Jesus calls us to love God. I was reminded of Augustine of Hippo, who in his autobi spiritual autobiography called The Confessions, he writes prayer of his entire life, towards the end of his life, a prayer to God and for all of us to read. Just before age 32, he had just converted to Jesus Christ. And he was with some friends in a vineyard outside of Milan at an estate. And there, 
As he writes in the Confessions, this is in Book 9, if you've ever read it, he writes and says this, When I read the Psalms, and this is a prayer, when I read the Psalms, songs of faithfulness and devotion in which the spirit of pride has no entry, what cries did I utter to you, O my God? I but a novice in your true love. I was in fear and horror, and again I was on fire with hope and exaltation in your mercy, O Father. And all these emotions found expression in my eyes and in my voice when your Holy Spirit turned to us and said, O ye sons of men, how long will you be dull of heart? Why do you love vanity so much and seek after lying? For I myself had loved vanity and I had sought after lying. But then he concludes and says, but the good I now seek was not in things outside of me to be seen by the eye of flesh under the sun. For those that find their joy outside them easily fall into emptiness. And they are spilled out upon the things that are seen and the things of time. And in their starved minds lick shadows. And there slaying the self and hoping in you. There you began to make me feel your love. And I cried out, I no longer wish any increase of earthly goods in which a man wastes time and is wasted by time. And it's this amazing prayer that is a classic. It's the first spiritual autobiography in the Christian tradition as far as I know. But you get the sense of it. What does it mean to bless the Lord? Well, the, Augustine is describing it in his own heart. It's for your heart to be on fire with passion for the living God. He who created you and redeemed you, you're giving everything back to him. Why? Because he deserves it and because he loves you and he wants your heart. It's to be fully present with the Lord. And it's to repent of licking shadows. So that is the essence of the Psalms of Ascents. The last step, Psalm 134, it's to bless the Lord with your mouth for sure, but first and most centrally with your heart. So now we've first talked about a spirit of consumerism. And now we just very briefly talked about what it means to ascend in the soul according to Psalm 134, at least at the very core, the very essence of what it's calling us to, to bless the Lord. Now I want to transition, and I think the psalm really becomes more alive as we consider it in contrast to a different way of thinking, to a different form of a sense. So I want to contrast a consumerist spirit with a spirituality of a sense, according to Psalm 134. And I have four contrasts, and I'm going to go very quickly, but you might want to write it down. Maybe you'll remember it. One contrast is the distinction in the center. It's a distinction about center. You see, within the consumer spirit, the center is you. The center is the self. And of course, we know that no relationship can work when you are at the center. Relationships become distorted and are destroyed, and they require a very different way of approaching relationships. Nevertheless, that is the consumer spirit at its core. 
But the biblical spirituality, the center is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We are not the center, but we are servants of the center, according to verse 1. The very end, the very, the very thing that we're pursuing is God as our center. He's the center and he's the telos. He's the end that we're seeking. The Westminster Confession, the Shorter Catechism. Question 1, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God, which is to bless God, which is to give your heart to God, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. A second contrast is a distinction in what we may call civility. It's, in other words, how we treat others. Now, a consumerist spirit, the other is used as an object, as an object of your desire. And we see all kinds of ways in the, which the consumerist spirit takes an object, and it's oftentimes a person, and we're using them for our own ends, and we fail to honor the dignity of the other. We misuse them, we distort them, we consume them, consumerism. We consume them. What is the Latin of consume? It means to eat, to devour, to destroy. That's what that spirituality is like. But the biblical spirituality is very different. It honors the dignity of the other. In fact, Augustine, uh, throughout his writings, argues that there is a what he would describe as a hierarchy of being in which there are different essences of different beings that deserve different levels of love. You love your art on one level, your dog on another level, your friend on another level, your children and your spouse on another level, and God on another level. You see, there's a hierarchy of being that God has made according to the creation, and he is intended for us to love each thing as it has been created according to the order that has been made. And sin, by its very definition, according to Augustine, sin by its very de definition, or, or vice by its very definition, is when we disorder our love. It's right and good to love every created thing throughout the universe. We should love it, but when we love it in the wrong order, and when God is not supreme at the center of our love, and when we don't love things through them to God, we misuse and abuse those things, and it immediately is what sin is. But when we love them rightly, properly, then that is virtue, according to Augustine. And it is a blessing to love things as they were intended to be made. So how do you, when you think about your hierarchy of being and what you're loving and the orders of your love, those, those are questions that you'd have to look at yourself and ask where is my meditation and where is my loves and how are they ordered and is God at the center and is God the supreme one that I love? And so there is this contrast in how these two spiritualities treat the other. A third contrast is a distinction in cadence or speed. The, the consumer spirit is, a, is all about instant gratification, is it not? It's, a, it's kind of a one-click sort of spirituality, same-day delivery. But the biblical spirituality doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Or maybe fortunately. Depends on your perspective. It demands, as it says in verse 2, that you stand by night in the house of the Lord. Now, Psalm 134 is clearly 
about the Levite, the Levites and the priests who were working in the temple. And the Levites were, they had various roles and jobs in the temple. They sang before the Lord constantly. They did much preparations around sacrifices and meals in order, in order to care for the people. It was hard work. This was not simple. And you and I, in the priesthood of all believers, have been, are also priests now. And as priests, you can't expect your faith to be instantaneous, to be like a rocket and that you're done and that you've completed things. You, my friends, must work and labor. It comes with blood and sweat and tears. It's all grace, 100% grace. But true spirituality is not one click away. And there is no two-day delivery. It doesn't work that way. Well, a fourth contrast concerns a difference in our companions. The difference in our companions. You see, a consumerist spirit, its end is a privatization of yourself in which you are the center and you become ultimately, the way it works, is you are self-absorbed with your own ends. And what does that not do? It does not, when you are concerned primarily or centrally about yourself, that does not lead to healthy community of any kind, whether it's in the church or beyond. And a consumer spirituality is creating that kind of community all around us. And that's part of the problem. It's the center can't be the self, but not so with a biblical spirituality. It actually, as you think about Psalm 134, it assumes community. The Psalms of a sense, uh, they're mostly written in the plural, not the singular. It's not about the individual soul and its private journey to God. No, not at all. It's about us collectively going to God together. We're called servants, it's plural, which makes us all equal and co-laborers. And we're put on mission. Every community, in order to be a healthy community, verse 2, must lift up their hands to the holy place. What does that mean? Well, the, the priest would be praying to the temple and interceding. One, one of the central tasks of a priest is to intercede on behalf of another to God in prayer. But you see, we as the church have been made into a holy priesthood. You and I, if you follow Jesus Christ and if you lean into this biblical spirituality, have been made priests. Which means that wherever you are, whomever you're with, whether it's in the neighborhood or at work or in the dorm or wherever you've been placed, you've been placed as a priest. And as a priest, you are there with a purpose, which is to intercede for others. And this, as a church, we are to do together, mixing our spiritual gifts together in order to serve God and to intercede on behalf of a struggling world. Well, we've briefly considered two alternatives to get a sense of a comparison of what the spirituality is like in Psalm 134 and compare it to this consumer spirit. Both promise assent, don't, do they not? But very, through def very different means, 
and towards very different ends. Now, if you live in the United States of America, you know that the consumerist spirit is something you breathe. It's forced on you, where every one of us is deeply socialized into this spirit. But the biblical spirituality uh, is different. It's offered as a free gift. And it requires your consent and your submission and yielding your heart. And it requires us to consider verse 3, where the Lord, it says, the Lord blesses you from Zion. We turn to Zion. It's from Zion that salvation comes. You see, at the center of Zion is the temple. And at the center of the temple, well, in a biblical theology, it's the throne of the cross and the resurrected king who shed his blood and gives the gift of his Holy Spirit. So for the soul to ascend, if we're going to really consider the biblical spirituality that Psalm 134 is a window into, for the soul to ascend, we need to go to Zion. It's the cross. It's that king. That's where the salvation lies. Not go to the moon or anything akin to the moon. And of course, the Apollo missions were a marvel. Don't hear me criticizing those. But after the initial thrill, our entire society knew that it was empty. That in the end, it was thrilling for the moment, but it was simply moon dust falling between our fingers. And everything that you might be pursuing today that is not God at the center, may I suggest to you that it is also just moon dust. It looks glittery and awesome, but it will fail you and disappoint you in the end. No, for the soul to ascend, there's only one place to go. It's Zion. It's Zion. That's where the king is. That's where the cross is. That's where the blood is that saves us and removes the stain of our sin. That's where the Holy Spirit is who fills us and transforms us and gives us a whole purpose and mission and identity. We go to Zion, not to the moon. Well, maybe not. Maybe Zion even reaches and encompasses the moon. What is little known about the Apollo 11 mission was that Buzz Aldrin, who's a complicated figure, I'm almost done with his autobiography, he's a complicated figure. And actually, did you know Buzz Lightyear came out of Buzz Aldrin? <laughs> Buzz Aldrin, after he landed the lunar module on the moon, you remember, and he famously said, Houston, the eagle has landed. On the live broadcast, Aldrin then invited the audience to take some time of silence in order to express thanks in light of all that had just happened. Unknown to the audience, in silence, off the air, Aldrin, within his personal packet, had brought a small silver chalice and a tiny bit of bread and a cup in order to celebrate communion. Weeks before, Aldrin had discussed it with his pastor, and a, a year later, he, he described what had happened. He says, and I quote him, we wanted to express our feelings 
that what man was doing in this mission transcended electronics and computers and rockets. I had this thought that God was revealing himself there too as man reached out into the universe. For there are many of us in the NASA program who do trust that what we are doing is part of God's eternal plan for man. Aldrin poured the, the wine into that small cup and then he read out loud John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. At the same time, his church in Houston was also celebrating communion with him. Aldrin says in that one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine slowly curled up and gracefully went up the sides of the cup. I've never taken communion that way. And he found it interesting to consider that the very first meal on the moon was the communion meal. So whether you are on the moon, or here on earth, or somewhere in between, true blessing and true ascension comes from only one place. It comes from Zion, where Christ has poured out his life in order that we might ascend. In a few minutes, we'll be celebrating communion. And I'd like to invite you, if you're ready to take communion, to consider these things of where your heart is and to renew your vows, your covenant vows to our Lord. And if there is a place in which you have been licking shadows that will only starve you, would you repent of that today and turn to the meal that will truly fill your soul? Encourage us to join together in such an ascent. And if you're not ready to take communion, you can still pray and consider these things before the Lord. Let us join together in true ascent and take this one last leap. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. And even so, Lord, we do bless you. And for whatever resistances lie in our heart, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move and shake and convince and persuade that out of you, out of Zion, comes our hope and salvation. Do this for your glory and our joy. Amen.